Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Editing. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Kick Puncher. Get kick punched right in the heart with the most lovable vigilante, the Kick Puncher. (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I'm Todd. And this is a movie podcast where we uh, review, break down films, and uh, look at it from filmmaker perspectives and try to just get better at the movie making process. And um, mostly we get to just geek out on movies and uh, pretend that we know what we're talking about. <laughs> I think we probably know more than most. That's probably true. Like, I mean, you know, I'm not like, like you know, honking our own horn here, uh, but... Um, <laughs> You know, we do work in the industry and we have for several years. So not that our own opinions are definitive, obviously, but, you know, it's it's like it's like anything, I think, with art, you know, um, your opinions probably change and adjust and grow dependent upon the amount of knowledge and experience that you have in said field. So I I have no opinions on chess players. I know how to play chess. Uh, but I know not the first, I don't know the first thing about like a good chess move, you know what I'm saying? And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't watch Magnus Carlsen playing and critique his play. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't even know who you just said. Like, who is that? Oh, check him out, man. This is, this kid is like one of the, uh, I mean, they, they call him one of the greatest, but he's, he's still a kid. He was, I think the youngest grandmaster, uh, player, chess player like master chess player, like in history, he was like, I don't know, in his early teens, he, he did this one thing where like with his back to, to them, he played 10 different games and beat everyone without ever looking at the board without ever looking at any board. (laughs) Yeah. Is that kind of, that kind of crazy genius, whatever. I think he's probably a little bit full of himself, but anyway, Totally digress. Meanwhile, I stopped tying my own shoelaces years oh, ago. Oh, yeah? Did you get? Did you go Velcro? <laughs> no, I don't go Velcro, but I tie it once and then I like never tie them again. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm the same way. I'm the same way, yeah. yeah. But, when yeah. I get new shoes, I always start, you know, like for a while, I'll, I'll untie them and then tie them again because I don't want to stretch, stretch right. them out, you know, by doing that. But then after probably, I want to say three weeks or so, I'm like, nah, screw this. <laughs> yeah. The odds of me keeping track of 10 chess games while watching them is let yeah, alone no. not good one chess game while watching it <laughs> but no i think you're right i mean uh you know you, you do pick up things along the way and for me doing these sometimes it's pretty satisfying uh like every once in a while you'll look up how they did a thing and i'm and i like, like to you know take a stab at here's how i probably would have done it if i was in their shoes and blah, blah, blah. and more you know more often than not they seem to line up pretty well like now that's not to say I know how Christopher Nolan did anything uh, that isn't obvious in this movie, but like it, it feels good to know that I'm not far away, uh, especially since I don't have the resources that these people do. Like uh, this last film we, we made, um, I had this special effects shot where I wanted to have the uh, the camera rotate while doing a slow-mo push-in. And I didn't have a crane. I didn't have the, the right, you know, tripod head or dolly head uh, to really make that work. And so we just kind of free-handed it and literally without anything other than just, you know, two sets of hands, 
made it work. And it's, it's a beautiful shot. It's like my favorite shot of the, the project. Uh, but it's low budget, like low budget is sometimes, yeah. uh, the most satisfying things you can do because it's fast Definitely. and it requires a little bit of, uh, uh, know how and uh, stick to if you will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, I mean, I think there's, it's, it's, there's something rewarding yeah. in that, in that regard, you know? Agreed. Although we do love gear. Oh, man. <laughs> this <laughs> I is, I feel like this is one of the things I, I've really learned in this last project was that I have a tendency to want to go, go, go. And so even whenever I have the gear, sometimes I don't want to use it because I want to spend more time shooting than not shooting. Um, but I think somewhere along the way in this project, I learned a lesson of take the extra five minutes, take the extra 10 minutes to set up and get it just a little bit better. Um, not everything always has to be rushed because a lot of my projects, I don't have time. I have like an hour on set and I have to just get it. But uh, sometimes you do have the time and learning when those times are uh, is the difference maker because it doesn't matter if you know how to do something. If you don't take the time to do it, you're, you're, you're missing out. You're, you're not giving your project everything you can. And so working on something on our own for a while and then coming back and watching something made by Christopher Nolan was like, Oh man, this shot probably took him two days, you know, um, or more than that, or maybe less than that. Just I'm thinking about, uh, well, we'll get, we'll get into that in here in a second, I guess. Yeah. And I, I'll bet, I'll bet though that, that even guys of that caliber probably it's, it's kind of like, you know, you hear about all these stadium musicians, right. Who play stadiums and stuff. And they, a lot of times they say, not always, I think Oasis is like a good example of a band that, that never has said this and they've said the opposite, but a lot of bands, they'll say, we miss the small gigs, you know? And I think that it's probably similar with guys like Nolan and, and, you know, Wes Anderson and stuff probably are just like, Th th those were the simpler days where, you know, we don't have a crane. We don't have a jib. Uh, we just have to make this shot work as best we can. How are we going to do that? And there's something like it's like a rewarding thing to figure that out without all the bells and whistles. I mean, obviously, they wouldn't sac they wouldn't right. sacrifice their hundred million dollars <laughs> budget to be able to have that feeling again, just like a band wouldn't sacrifice playing a stadium. But there is something to that, you know, and we like just don't take that at for granted as a, an indie filmmaker, right? Those moments of like, Oh man, we didn't know how we were going to do this. And it's really important. And we made it work. That's just very satisfying, you know, feeling that I think that even the big guys probably, they probably have their own version of that. It's just, you know, <laughs> they, they had the hundred thousand dollar crane instead of the quarter million dollar crane. So they, you know, how, whatever that version of that looks like. We couldn't get the techno crane in there, which, you know, created a lot of yeah. havoc. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. Your $500,000 crane didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Poor, poor dude. Poor guys. So what are we going to do today? We are covering Inception. So if you have not watched Inception, uh, please pause this episode. Please pause this episode and go watch that because we will be spoiling the hell out of this thing, talking about a lot of details uh, that you won't want to know before you watch this. I mean, this is a huge spoiler uh, movie, you know, so make sure to watch it. 
Definitely. We'll talk about everything. Uh, we'll touch on directing, which easily could have also been cinematography. Uh, but we'll talk about like writing the line between dramatic and hokey. Um, we'll also talk about the writing. It's hard to talk about Christopher Nolan without discussing uh, his writing and storytelling. And we'll discuss like creating a new universe and the meaning in a name. Uh, we'll also, you know, maybe touch on the ending. <laughs> as I think anyone who listens to our show regularly will assume that this is something that we're going to want to try and tackle. And so we will, we'll talk about the ending and what is the answer to this mind spinning ending uh, and other such stuff and things and stuff. Did you do this on purpose? No. What happened? Can you not hear me? The synopsis. Oh, <laughs> dang it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do I was... usually just read things blindly, but lately I've been reading ahead. <laughs> For those of you listening, in in case Wes doesn't edit this out, in the synopsis he has written, it's it's a Dookie McButt Butt who steals corporate secrets through. (laughs) All right. So synopsis of the film, a thief who steals corporate secrets through the use of dream sharing technology is given the inverse task of planting an idea into the mind of a CEO written and directed by Christopher Nolan cinematography by Wally Fester featuring Leo, Leo DiCaprio as Cobb, Ellen Page as Ariande, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Arthur, Tom Hardy as uh, Eames, Ken Watanabe as Saito, Killian Murphy as Robert Fister, and Marion Cotillard. Cotillard? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Cotillard. And Marion Cotillard as Maul. There's one thing you should know about me. I specialize in a very specific type of security. Subconscious security. You're talking about dreams. Mr. Cobb has a job offer he would like to discuss with you. Like a work placement? Not exactly. We create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream, and they fill it with their secrets. Then you break in and steal it. Well, it's not strictly speaking legal. It's called Inception. Already. I think I found a way home. And this last job, that's how I get there. Yeah. I mean, this is... I really like the trailer just for its uh, ability and how pointed it is in terms of establishing what you're going to be watching because the posters don't make sense. It's beautiful. And it's like, whoa, this is kind of mind bending. Uh, But then it's like, I don't really understand. And to take this high level idea and to break it up into chunks that easily explains what you're going to be getting into is already like really great storytelling um and that's not always easy to do in a trailer i've definitely seen uh, plenty of trailers that you're like i it either gives too much away um in order mm-hmm. to make its case or it uh doesn't give you enough information about what you're really going to experience and this manages to do all of that 
it's yeah, it's a great directing, great storytelling. But that aside, I assume you've seen this, you know, a handful of times at a minimum. How, what was your feeling watching it and prep for the show? Well, I was really excited to do this one because I've seen it probably. I, I own this movie, which I don't own a lot of movies, but I do own this one. I've probably seen it uh, maybe close to a dozen times. But, you know, every time you see this movie, you like catch something else. It's like, or you notice some other, like some other real detailed piece of the storytelling or the writing or, or, um, just in general, like the loops that come back and how they set it up. And, um, uh, so I was really excited to, to watch it again. And I, I mean, I just want to, I just want to say that I cannot overstate the complexity and detail with which this, this script was written. I don't, I, I, while I was watching it, I was really trying to think of any other movie, any other script that was as detailed and thought out and meticulously crafted as this. And I, I just, I mean, maybe more of a film scholar could think of one, but I just, I just can't. I mean, every single word, every single look, every, every, Every little piece, everything that happened is planned out to the period. And it's a masterpiece in that regard. It really is. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I was watching it and I was trying to think of anything that could be wrong with it. And I, okay, there's, there is a lot of exposition, but I think, and, and I hate exposition. I think we, we both are not huge fans of it, especially exposition for the sake of exposition. But in this, in, in this case, I take exception for a lot of it because it's, it's a, it's in a world where something completely foreign is the norm, right? So for these people, this is a normal thing that they do on a daily basis for a living. It needs to be explained because there's so much to it. So things like the deeper you go, the longer you're down there for the same amount of time at a higher level and reminding if they go deeper that they have time, right? When uh, Fisher, and we, we've already said spoilers, when Fisher dies at the end and, and she says, uh, Ariande says, says, we have time if we go deeper, Okay. And, and then they say how much time, right? They're not just saying we have time. And it's like this general, you have time. It's, we have this much time, right? And a couple of times throughout that whole, the whole inception process, they're establishing, okay, three minutes at this level, 60 minutes at this level, reminding you there is more time where they are. So, so that all the things that are happening, right, are happening with a lot of time and then they go up one level to Arthur who's doing this stuff a lot faster, right? With a lot more urgency because he only has three minutes instead of they have 60 minutes down below. That's just one example, but setting up things like it is so brilliant the way that Nolan sets up things later in the film. You know, uh, there's this, there's this form of writing. And I think I, you know about this and uh, I think I may have given you a book or whatever, but it's called this, the it's you basically write the story in a circle, right? 
like the story clock thing and and where you know maybe at two o'clock this happens and this is going to relate to something at seven o'clock and you know at eight o'clock it's reverting back to something that happened at three o'clock you know things like that he does this masterfully all over the place to where even if you don't understand something right then you he closes the loop every single pl- everywhere everywhere you can tell that this was mapped out i mean with a fine tooth comb and it's it's just incredible it's just incredible and uh the acting is fantastic and just all of i mean you know we're suckers for sci-fi um so you have me at that and that's one of the reasons why i think that we love nolan but sci-fi for the sake of sci-fi is not what we love we love smart sci-fi and this is a story that no one has ever thought to tell before in any way shape or form and in order to tell it he had to he had to make this um this journey he basically had to invent his own genre in in this regard and he totally did it It, it's it's unbelievable um just in the in the script writing and the the screenplay itself so I mean, I, I'm not going to get off my soapbox here because there's a lot of other stuff that I want to cover about all these things that we want to talk about. But it was so much fun to watch again, and uh, I, I wish we could cover it next week so I could watch it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing because it's a two and a half hour movie that doesn't feel like it. Like it does no. such a good job because I I looked at you know the runtime right before I hit play and I was like, oh man, oh here we go. But it just keeps moving you seamlessly through this thing to the next and then right when you feel like oh we're about to wrap up we start a whole new segment of the journey like at the end like you said after uh, fisher dies and they you know ariadne has that you know idea like hey no we have all the all the time that we need in the world uh, on the next level down like uh, the relativity of time will give us all the time we need in order to go find them and bring them back and still complete the mission and then that begets this whole new section of him going and confronting Maul and uh, eventually, you know, going to rescue uh, Saito. Um, and at that point, before that happens, you already feel like, oh, we're wrapping things up. Like this is the, the climax of the film. And it really wasn't quite there yet. Like we still had, you know, several minutes to go. Uh, and that's such a satisfying. This is the thing that always blows my mind with Christopher Nolan, because everything you said is right. Like he's just inventing and creating new universes um, and, and going, taking you know, these very simple ideas and going 50 levels deep with it, like the idea of invading someone's dreams, right? Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger. And he's like, yeah, that's, that's toddler stuff. You know, you're, you're talking about, uh, the, what do you call the, the baby's crib, the thing that hangs over the baby's crib, uh, mobile. Yeah. Mobile. You're, you're thinking about mobiles. I'm thinking about spaceships. I'm about to take you to the moon. Um, and it's just, genius because it's one thing to have an idea it's another thing to make it exciting all the way through and this is something that we just don't get with most sci-fi which is you get high level thinking and high level excitement and execution like in every way this is one of the most (laughs) exciting things to uh to be able to sit down in front of and and say okay uh, this is a cool trailer but 
are you going to fulfill kind of this promise? And that's the thing that he does, I think, better than almost anybody else's. He makes a promise to you that you're going to experience something that you haven't experienced before and you're going to enjoy it. Um, and none of it ever feels cheap. You know, there's so many movies that make these big promises, but then you get to the end of the experience, and you are like, you feel, you feel a little cheated. You're like, oh, okay, you know, I guess that, or, you know, I saw that coming or, uh, that doesn't really make sense. That doesn't, you know, feel very satisfying. Uh, but not with him. Like you get through these, this experience and you're like, oh, whoa, I thought about that before, but never in this terms, or I've never even considered that, uh, which is usually where I am in watching his films. It, I just never think of the things that he thinks of. And that makes him super exciting for me as a, not just as a filmmaker, but as a movie fan, um, because I've seen nearly everything under the sun and to sign up for something and have this expectation of you're going to wow me. That's you don't get that every day. And he just absolutely delivers. Uh, and I just wish I could on some level just understand where this all comes from, uh, because it's you can't bottle it if you could, I guess. I uh, mean, yeah, you know, so it's no it's for anybody who's listening to this podcast. Everybody knows that, that Interstellar is our favorite mm-hmm. film, but this script is better. Yeah. This script is, I mean, it's so singular in its thought. This yes. idea, which is the whole point, yeah. right? It's planting this idea. And that, that was the most brilliant thing to me was, okay. In everything that Nolan does, it's all about relationships, right? That is the core of everything, right? So the, the core of this is, Cobb trying to get back to his kids because of something that happened because of a relationship with his wife, right? The whole, the whole journey of them trying to do inception on Fisher was based on his relationship with his father, right? It's all about relationships and their sellers. Yeah. So that is the core of everything that he does, right? It's about human interaction and relationships. So to tie his Cobb's relationship with Maul to this idea of him spinning the top of him doing, doing inception on her spinning the top in her safe and locking it. And that is the cause of her killing herself. It has to be one of the most brilliant, it is like so deep. So, so, okay. It's easy for you to think of a movie, uh, a topic, right. Or like a, a a plot, Mm -hmm. right. It's easy to think of a plot. Even this, let's just say on the surface, oh, it's about dreams, about going, about going a dream within a dream. And stealing people's ideas through the dreams. Yes, yes. And even, even planting an idea, right? That's, that's fine. It's not even, but that's not where the brilliance comes in, right? The brilliance is not in that idea. The brilliance is in the little things that make that idea a real feeling, because right? yes, because like, what you're describing uh, is it's a concept. It's it's a setting. It's not a story. The ability to wrap a story around your concept is what makes people want to see it again or see it in the first place. Yeah, and that so and him spinning the top in Maul's in Maul's safe in her mind. If this is the first time you've seen this film, it's not totally obvious, right? I mean, it is it it's obvious, right? But it's you got to really be heady. You got to really think, well, why does that mess her up after she wakes up? Well, it's because the top is still spinning in her head. And so, you know, and, and she doesn't know that he put it there. It's her own idea because he did inception on her. So like you, but that is like multiple layers 
of of detail and storytelling within the story that's what makes it that genius and that's just one little tiny thing that plans that that actually is the impetus of the entire movie yeah. If he didn't do that, this movie would not happen. He wouldn't be trying to get back to his kids. He wouldn't be away from them in the first place. She wouldn't have killed herself. Uh, he'd be happy with her, you know, but it's that one little thing. But that thing is everything. It's just un, unreal, unreal. So no, it's brilliant. Like it's all those details, you know, that add up to something, a meaningful experience. And you're right. Like that is such a, a simple thing. And what, what also makes it so good is, there's an old adage in filmmaking and storytelling, um, specifically in movies, is show me, don't tell me. Um, he could have explained that, you know, in a paragraph, but it's so much more powerful, you know, not ironically at all, in that he's just showing us something and we're creating the thoughts based on what we're seeing. Like, um, I wouldn't say he's in, incepting us, the audience, but uh, he's definitely creating a visual that we get to think and extrapolate based on. Uh, and that is just really effective storytelling because it's so much more impactful to give someone an idea visually that they have to digest and uh, come to terms with on their own and wrestle with and think about um, than it is to just say it out loud. I put a spinning top in that's not only uh, sloppy and and not emotionally affecting, but it's also going to be uh, just hokey. And it goes back to this idea that, you know, I, I want to discuss, which is the ability to have slow realizations for grounded dramatic effect. Like that's so much better than having these quick turns of phrase or these quick, quicker moments. Uh, another moment that kind of uh, speaks to this is when they're running the gambit, right? Mr. Charles and Arthur is sitting on the bench with Ariadne and she's like, who's Mr. Charles? And he's kind of explaining it. And she's like, well, I don't think it's working. Like everyone's starting to look at us and he's like, kiss me. And they kiss and she's like, they're still looking. He's like, it was worth a shot. Um, and that's this, you know, punchline but she slowly reacts to the realization of oh he just kind of uh, got a kiss out of me and that was kind of it like <laughs> and it's this very slow moment because he's almost leaving the screen by the time she's reacting to it it just lets you linger in this moment instead of i think the comedic way to play that out would be you know to kind of whip pan over to him look at him frown or you know whatever make a joke out of it and instead it adds it adds a little bit of humor without making it feel hokey um, and also keeps the grounded dramatic moment building because right in that moment we're building towards something which is is this gambit going to pay off and the great thing about the whole mr charles bit is they set it up pretty quickly that this doesn't work and by just planting that idea in our head, it's setting us up to wait for it to fail, which adds a lot of tension, and a lot of stakes, uh, because it plays on this whole rule of, and as an audience member, you don't really know this, uh, but it plays on the rule of no two things happen the same way twice, right? And so if, if the inverse had been set up where, hey, we're going to do this thing that works every time, then you have to see it fail. Mm -hmm. because you're now expecting it to work again. And so it's playing off, playing up to your expectations and upsetting your expectations. And so by just telling us ahead of time, we didn't get to see it fail before, but we get to see through, you know, his acting, his performance and just the verbalizing of, Oh my God, the argument between uh, Cobb and Arthur, like, 
dude, this doesn't work. You know, the last time we tried this, it failed miserably and we got torn to pieces. Like he's creating this visual in our mind of this can go really, really wrong, uh, which ramps up the stakes and the, uh, the tension, uh, which makes the rest of that scene, the rest of that whole segment play really much more uh, impactful to the audience and to the viewer. Uh, it's just really... I remember that, I remember that feeling when, when he told her, she said, well, why doesn't it work? And he said, well, because it involves telling the dreamer that they're dreaming. And I remember that feeling, even seeing it the 10th time or whatever it was, the feeling like, oh, crap, he's going to tell him he's dreaming. Oh, my gosh. Like, what's going to happen? You know? It, it, uh, it yeah. is so good because they set it up in her training whenever she finds out that she's dreaming and everything around her starts exploding and uh, right. everyone in the in the in the setting in the background extras like everyone started reacting and so we've had this running tension uh that we didn't even realize until he starts poking at at that idea and you're right him saying flat out um helps set the stakes and set the uh, the scenario of what's about to happen um yeah. so that before we even begin the gambit we already know the stakes and what he's going to try to pull off, uh, which is just good communication and good uh, storytelling. <laughs> like, yeah, and 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 another reason why I don't mind the exposition so much is because th- like half of the team doesn't think that this is going to be possible, right? And none of them, besides Cobb, have done it before. So when they're spitballing ideas and talking about things, they're really you know when when um, Eames is is saying talk about the relationship with the father because good mem- thoughts is are are better than bad thoughts or whatever it's it's for real they're really talking about it because they haven't done this before they have to teach each other what each other knows mm-hmm. so Eames knows something that Arthur doesn't know Arthur knows something that Arianda doesn't know she knows something that Cobb doesn't know you know like so they're teaching each other and by teaching each other they're teaching us um instead of you know, we've all done this before, but, you know, kind of like the, the, the Ocean's Eleven kind of thing. We're all thieves and we've stolen, you know, like a lot of big things, but we're still going to explain everything. It's, it, no, no one has done this before, really. Save Cobb, but he can't design anything. And he's got Maul on his heels. So we all have to talk about it and we all have to be on the same page, right? And then the exposition is fine even after they're in because, they didn't know about Maul, learning about Maul, right? And they didn't know about um, all the stuff that Cobb knew about before they got in there. So now they're having to like rework things and change things up. And so they have to keep talking about it. So it, it actually plays into the story that they have to teach each other. No, that's so good. It makes it so much more efficient and it doesn't feel clunky or unearned. Yeah. And even with that, he still uses the classic ploy of bringing in a new character in order to mm-hmm. deliver exposition to the audience, right? We get to see her training. We get to see her understand, you know, where all the pitfalls are and why you do or don't do certain things. Because as an audience member walking into this, you're thinking, oh, we're going to see a, a movie about dreams and therefore we're going to see something like The Cell where crazy things are happening and instead you get taught why you don't want to see crazy things happening in this movie it's because they're not going to be able to accomplish their mission if you do those things and so it it gives you a a really good basis for keeping everything grounded 
in a, a realistic sense instead of whenever he says dream of something bigger darling like you, you don't see you know a tank roll out like you see a, a, a nice bazooka grenade launcher. Yeah, yeah, a yeah grenade launcher and uh that makes so much more sense because you why would a tank suddenly burst through if you did that uh, in a similar way that the the train rolls down the street you're going to ruin things <laughs> right um, and right. we see the consequences of that stuff play out in a number of ways and uh, over a number of times yeah no he is just great like in i guess to keep the train rolling here no pun intended no pun intended. <laughs> um the going back to the directing like uh the hallway the bedroom fight scene i thought was interesting not because of all the reasons that we're all familiar with him and maybe you can talk to this uh there's just a thousand you know of these clips rolling around of him in the rotating uh, room or whatever but one of the things I really like is after they fight their way out of the hallway and they're in the bedroom and they're kind of uh, scraping down the side of the ceiling and the, the wall and down onto the bed, the frame, whenever you were watching that, is a little clunky in the sense that you're not capturing the whole thing. You're kind of capturing bits and pieces. Uh, and that's nice because the frame doesn't always have to capture everything. Blocking things away from the frame uh, makes it feel much more action, action-packed and as things are coming in and leaving the frame, the, the sense of tumbling around and you're on the bed and uh, it's much tighter than we were in the hallway. Um, and I think it just adds tension and excitement through the camera movement um, and through not letting us see everything that's happening away from, uh, you know, out of sight. Because now is that character, you know, winding up a gun or uh, what's happening? And so just the, the way that the frame is so much tighter and you're not and it's not as clean, I think, adds a lot to it. And. I kind of like shooting things that way, you know, especially whenever there's something a little more action going on. I don't like framing everything so that you can see everything. I, I really love um, that he's he's doing that stuff here. Yeah, I don't. So maybe you can speak to that whole hallway sequence. Like, do you remember how long Joseph Gordon, Gordon Levitt and the uh, stuntman like trained for that sequence? It was like a couple of weeks or a month. Because that's pretty outrageous to be spinning a room around someone and making them kind of fight for it. Uh, I don't. I don't know how long. Do you know how long? I don't. Like I don't. I know it was. It was a while. Yeah, it, it really was. And you can tell. You can tell that this is like that. Arthur himself is a trained fighter, just because of the moves that happen that mm -hmm. he does, and and that that you know he jumping from one wall to the other wall and stuff. It's not like. Not like he's actually done that before uh, as a as a human, but like you can tell that this was a lot of a lot of training went into this, and it was definitely choreographed. And this is something that I mean, you have to train. You have to train for for weeks. I mean, may, maybe into, into months for sure on, on something like this. But uh, and then you got to be really careful too, you know, to not hurt your. Uh, your actors. I don't. I don't think. I don't even. I don't know if there's a stunt double or not. But I think there probably had to be on some portions of it. Well, I was just thinking the stunt man that he's fighting against, not necessarily uh, subbing in for JGL, because I assume. Yeah, I assume he just did all that himself. And it seemed like a lot of people were Maybe. doing their own stunts. Like I, I want to yeah. say Tom Hardy hopped off a snowmobile in mid-flight, barrel rolled, and then ripped off his mask as he's rolling into that last compound. Like it was a hardcore move because I want to say he, <laughs> he like tumbled end over end before, you know, coming to a rest and popping up like it was yeah. badass. And I was like, oh, snap, Tom Hardy with the well, that's Tom stunts, Hardy, man. man. That's, 
That's Tom. Hardcore. Man. But even that that whole idea of building the hallway and rotating it, um, that takes so much work and so much money to execute. I saw a music video, and I'll link it in the show notes, where this guy had the same idea. And they spent, I want to say, like 10 or 15 grand constructing this rotating room. And it's it's a tricky thing because in order to make it really effective, uh, and I want to say this was done in like a, a Gene Kelly film, maybe Singing in the Rain. I don't remember which film where the, the room is rotating and he's kind of dancing on the ceiling and dancing on the wall um, and doing all these things. You're, you're having to do some pretty outrageous things with uh, set building and creating the camera, locking the camera down onto the floor. And whenever they're shooting this hallway scene, they were doing bits and pieces of that where sometimes the camera is locked onto the room so that it looks like they're bouncing around onto the ceiling, like gravity is shifting. And then other times the camera's kind of free floating, uh, presumably off a, off a crane and zooming down the hallway so that we're kind of keeping perspective of them as they're fighting. And so in a number of ways, it's kind of fulfilling all these exciting ideas of what does it look like from someone who wouldn't be floating around and what is also the experience like as someone who's going through this, uh, as the fighters in the, in the, in the sequence. Uh, that's a good, that's a good point about it. Fulfilling that, that thought, cause you do feel that, you know, you don't want to be completely locked down. Although being locked down is really cool. Cause then they're fighting on the ceiling and the walls and stuff, but then you kind of want to be free you, because you, you watch them do that and you're like, oh, I mean, I know they're fighting, but that kind of looks like fun. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like what, what would that be like? And then he gives that to you, you know. And it's hard. It's hard as, you know, whenever you're going through this. And luckily, I'm sure he gets way more time in pre-production than I do. But to some degree, you even have to think of this as you're writing it. What does an audience walking into this want to experience? What questions are they going to have or what thoughts are they going to experience on this journey? And with that, you have to start anticipating and fulfilling that in a very satisfying way, in a way that adds more questions and leads them down a new path or uh, gives them, you know, a satisfying conclusion. There's so many things to kind of wrap your head around. And one of the things that he did in this film that I don't feel like I've ever seen before was the way he used slow motion as a storytelling device. Like normally slow motion is, you know, just a, a method of adding something cool or maybe slowing things down enough for you to digest a scene or digest a moment. Um, and that's all fine. Uh, but here he used it as an actual storytelling device to tell you how much time is left before the kick comes right. Um, and to, demonstrate the relativity between different layers in the dreams and it's just beautiful right it signifies time as it relates to other dream levels in a way that would only make sense through slow motion and then on top of that it just happens to look really cool (laughs) like seeing this bus just crawl infinitely slowly on its way you know to pass a few more inches of water like uh it's just amazing and, and really brilliant storytelling one other thing I thought was interesting that I can't really, you know, speak to too much, but at the very end, whenever Fisher walks into his dad's death room, uh, in the vault, so to speak, that whole vault room with his father, it looks like, uh, something out of 2001 space odyssey. And I can't really, uh, if you know about that scene and that sequence, it's something fun to chew on. I can't really talk about it without 
royally uh, ruining 2001. But if you know that scene, it, I think it's fun to think about that scene in, in light of Inception and think of why did he choose that uh, kind of styling. Um, and I think there's some extra fun layers there for, for audience members. That's cool. But getting into the, the writing, one of the hard things about creating a new world is grounding it and making the rules very clearly established so that your expectations and the tension can arrive on time. Uh, because if you don't know the rules or if you haven't thought them out very clearly, uh, you're going to have a very confusing film that isn't very satisfying. Uh, but he does a really great job, even from the beginning. Like we open in the uh, in a, in a dream sequence that where right mall shows up at the worst time possible and she threatens to shoot uh, Arthur or the uh, Arsado or both of them, probably Arthur. Um, and she, and he's like, what does it matter? She's like, well, killing will just wake him up, but pain is in the mind. And then she shoots him in the leg, right? Because yeah. wounding him hurts him physically. And so she's establishing two things there. One, if you die, it doesn't really matter. But if you get hurt, that matters a lot. <laughs> like pain is still real. Pain is still pain. Mm -hmm. And of course, later on, we get that upset. We have established a rule and now we're going to break it and show you how the stakes are now much higher than you uh, expected coming into this journey. And you see all the, uh, the characters react to that expectation because, you know, whenever they get into the heist, uh, they find out, oh, if we die, we're screwed. We're going to lose our minds and effectively die a death of a different kind uh, by living in limbo and having reality completely jacked up. But then early in the film, right, we tie in also how him being dropped into the tub affects his dream just below, right? Because we see him fall into the tub and then we see the water kind of squirting in into the room that he's in. It's like, oh my God, the what's happening above him and the, the layer up is happening is affecting what he's experiencing, you know, right in that room. And it's so visually satisfying. That whole sequence is outrageous. Unbelievable. And that goes what I was talking about at the uh the the show and in our preamble. I was like, man, the time that it must take to shoot that scene probably took a day or two because you only really get one shot at that thing and you got to get yeah. it right yeah yeah <laughs> you and build what an iconic shot just from both ends but that goes back to this the story writing too is just how brilliant is that i mean you really you know have to you really have to really to be in touch with your own mind with your own experience in dreaming with other people's experience in dreaming with you know studying the meaning of dreams of of like like paying attention to the fact that man you know <laughs> if if someone douses you with water uh, while you're sleeping, you might feel like you're drowning in a dream before you wake up one second later, but the drowning might feel like 10 minutes in your dream, even though it was literally a second since they threw water on you and you woke up those details, personifying those details into a story like that and making it so smart, just unbelievable. So yeah. good. And then right after that, they tie in how the music at the top level also spills into a dream. So he's establishing right away how his universe works. Um, and then of course he's very disappointed in his architect. Um, and so now we have to get a new team member, which is, as we were saying earlier, is perfect for exposition to us, the audience, uh, because as she's learning, we're also being taught and pretty early on, she learns and we learn that a small object unique that no one else knows, right? It gives the idea of your, your totem um, that becomes pretty significant uh, later on, which we will get to. And 
Speaking of, so another thing with writing that he seems to do a lot of uh, is find significance in names. And I didn't go through the whole list of names. I didn't have a lot of thoughts about all of them. Um, but Ariadne, uh, if you don't know, is a from a Greek myth. Uh, she has a, an association with mazes and labyrinths. And a quote directly from Wikipedia is, she's in charge of the labyrinth where sacrifices were made as part of reparations. And if you think about how that informs Inception, mm. right, he's in this maze trying to pay reparations uh, for what he did to his wife and so that he can get back to being with his children and be reunited with his family. Um, so she is helping him fulfill that aspect mm -hmm. of his journey. And then Eames, I thought was very interesting. I knew because there's a documentary I've had on my uh, to-do list for like almost a decade now about uh, a painter named Eames or a designer named Eames. And I never, I still haven't watched it. So I had to look up who is this guy. And it turns out it's a husband and wife. Uh, it's Charles and Ray Eames. And they are really interesting. And the more I dug into them, the more I was like, wow, they're really informing uh, the world of Inception, which is pretty cool. Uh, and I'll link to some stuff in the show notes, but just to kind of give you an idea, they were designers, they were uh, architects in their own right. Um, and they also were filmmakers. There's a film, a short film that they made that's pretty, uh, I guess, famous, um, but really well known. And it's called Powers of Ten. And it's something that we've probably all seen since, you know, this thing came out, not necessarily this specific film. But we've seen other people do it where you're getting a sense of scale like, oh, here's what, you know, a human on a beach looks like. And now here's what this person looks like from space. And then here's what mm -hmm. the earth looks like from the universe and blah, blah, blah. You kind of keep extrapolating. And this film was made in the 70s and it takes that idea and it starts with, you know, a couple of people on a picnic blanket. And then uh, you keep zooming out at a very specific rate um, until you get to, I don't know, uh, the galaxy. And then they reverse course and you zoom back in until you get down to the level of like atoms or particles or something. Um, and for this being made in the 70s, I thought it was really cool. But I also feel like it informs this universe just in the sense of a, there's this idea that we're drilling down into dreams. You know, you keep going further and further inside of people, inside the mind. So maybe instead of, you know, the physical world, he was thinking of uh, the brain, the mind as a sense of uh, the powers of 10 and the way that you can keep drilling down. But then on top of that, what I thought was really cool, they made an exhibition uh, in Chicago, I want to say, that was sponsored by IBM. And if you, and I'll, I'll, Actually, this is in the, uh, the show notes. Todd, if you want to scroll down to the Mathematica, a world of numbers and mm -hmm. beyond, I think you'll find this really cool. If you open up that link and scroll down just a hair, you'll notice something that might pop out to you. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think of them? The apples? pseudosphere? The pseudosphere. It's... I want to say I feel pretty confident that that's probably where he that's got the inspiration for the, the spinning top totem. 100%. Right? It looks, that's it. That's it. That, it. that is it. <laughs> it's very wow. like down to the, the texture and the color of it. And so I feel pretty confident that uh, Christopher Nolan finds significance in names. <laughs> if you consider Ariadne and uh, Eames, um, and they're both kind of representations of architecture and design and uh, some of these very thoughtful elements. But yeah, and so I'll, I'll link to some of that stuff. I'll, that's amazing. Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? Good find. <laughs> yeah, and you can see that at the show notes um, at thepestlepodcast.com slash inception uh, for those curious. Wow. And so, yeah, but let's, 
let's get into the real the real goodies. So the bef- meat of it. Before I like have you thinking about elephants, what uh what do you think of the ending? Do you think he's still dreaming? So this is the big question, just to set the mm-hmm. table. Is people watch this movie and at the end, the the top is still spinning. That's what we cut to the credits on the top spinning, and so we never see it to- topple over. But that ad- that begs the question: Is he's still dreaming is he still asleep or is he awake um and what's your feeling do you think he's awake or asleep so yeah i knew you were gonna ask this question obviously we had to discuss this yeah uh, i think that we discussed it after we saw it in the imax uh, and i don't know if you still have the same feeling as what you did before i probably i don't know i mean i don't remember what i assume my take has always been uh that he's awake that it does topple yeah okay yeah yeah the- yeah that's 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 mine and the the reason is uh, because every other time where they show it and it and it's a dream where they show it spinning while it's a dream, it never wiggles. I mean, it doesn't even travel. Yeah. Right. It is literally it is as still as possible. Boom! Right there. It doesn't wiggle, and it shouldn't. If it's a dream, it shouldn't wiggle at all. It should just be spinning. I mean, w- at least with the laws that he's given us. Um, in the, in these, this world. And in this case, it wiggles. And I, and obviously I think that he did that on purpose, right? Because if it was just perfectly straight, I think that we would probably be sitting here and saying, I think that might be a dream and that might not feel good. Mm. Right. In, in thinking that it was, so he wants to leave you with the question, but possibly leaving, leave you feeling like, I think the answer is good. Yeah. Right. Because, because, and we establish, Cobb establishes that a positive, positive reinforcement is stronger than negative. Right. He establishes that when they're going, going, doing inception on Fisher beforehand. So great point. To me, it's reality. And, uh, but he wants to leave you with a question, but a question that you probably think is a, a good outcome. That's a really good point about him wanting to reinforce a positive reinforcement. Yeah, I th- that's a really, really good point. So I'll walk you down the notes that I took and what, why I think, I think first we have to establish that this entire movie is not a dream. And we do that when we see Cobb test reality after the opening heist, right? He wakes up and the first thing he does is spin and we cut away and we're like, are we going to see it? And then we cut back and we do see it topple. And so we do establish that he is not in a dream at, at least at the beginning. Another thing to, to keep in mind about totems is the reason you don't want someone to touch them isn't because that'll wreck you. It's because you don't want them to know how you're, how it feels, the balance of it. And this specific thing, if they were to find out means they could, they themselves could construct a, uh, a dream, uh, that you would get sucked into and not know that you were in a dream. And so with that in mind, the only possible person in this film who could have done that, well, there, I guess technically there's two, there's two people that touched the totem that he touched, which would be Saito, which I think we're pretty well established that he was the one that was in trouble. There's nothing in the movie that would lead me to believe that Saito, because he touched it in a dream. That's kind of after the fact he would have to have had to have touched it in reality. The only other person that actually touched it in reality would be Maul because it was her totem. So the only person that could have constructed this universe would have been Maul. 
And so he would have been stuck in Maul's dream. But we never actually meet Maul. We only meet his iteration, his version of her. And so I don't think there's any scenario where you could establish that he was dreaming throughout the entire movie. So with that in mind, after he does the, the reality test at the beginning, uh, he talks to his kids on the phone and they sound a few years older in voice than what we saw at the beginning. Right. The little girl was really tiny. She was, you know, whatever, maybe three or four years old. Um, but then we get to her on the phone. So there's a lot more bass. She's grown. You can hear it in her voice that she's uh, a lot older. The other thing that they establish in the film whenever, you know, we're training Ariadne is that that was weird. Um, something popped up on my laptop. Force quit just randomly popped up. And I was like and I thought maybe mm. something wrecked, but nothing is wrecked. So whenever we're training Ariadne, uh, we established that you, in a dream, you suddenly jump in and out, right? You never remember how you got there. And so I think Christopher Nolan is playing with us a little bit throughout the film. Suddenly we're on a plane. Suddenly we're in a helicopter, right? We never see them get in the helicopter. We see uh, the helicopter take off and they're just suddenly in it. We never actually see them crawl into the helicopter uh, and start that plane ride. Uh, they go from being outside to inside. And that's that in, in a single edit. The other thing uh, is we're suddenly in a classroom, right? We see him looking in the classroom and then we're just suddenly in it. Um, we're suddenly outside with Ariadne uh, after, you know, he meets her in the room. And so I think Christopher Nolan is playing a game with us. I, I think that the tell comes at the very end because all that happens. But at the end, we see Cobb and the team wake up. We don't jump to them in the middle of being awake. We see them all wake up. We see them go through customs. We see him get his luggage. We see him exit with his dad and we see him walk into his house. We don't just see him suddenly with his kids again. Like, so in that sense, we're establishing that all these things were, were establishing how he gets from the plane to the house with his kids instead of just this sudden jump. And so there's no sporadic jumping into these scenes and the kids are dressed similar. And this is where I think uh, a lot of people get thrown off because the kids are dressed similar, but they're only dressed similar to mess with our minds. But it's not the same clothes, nor are they the same age like they've aged up. And Todd, if you want, you can scroll to the bottom of our show notes where I insert the before and after so that you can see the clothes are, in fact, different and they are, in, in fact, different ages just so that you can kind of establish that. And so what I think is actually happening here. Nice. So I don't know if you heard the, the very end of that. Sorry if this all seems a little abrupt in the edit, uh, but basically um, I just had a big computer malfunction and had to reboot. And so, yeah, at the very end, if you scroll to the, uh, the end of the notes, you can see that they're dressed very differently, even though similarly, uh, but they're clearly aged and in different clothes. And so... All that adds up to, I think that he is in reality, um, but the idea I think that he's going for here is that we are being incepted much like Maul was incepted, right? She incepts us just like Cobb incepted her. Cobb left the top spinning in our memory vault. That's the last thing we see. And so that's the top is still spinning in our own minds. Um, and so right. I think this is Christopher Nolan just jacking with our reality when in reality he was just fine. He was uh, awake and and finally back with his kids. We got to see their faces. Yeah. So that kind of is where I think the movie leads us to not just me wanting the ending that I do want. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I've seen other fan theories saying other things to like 
he technically, because his totem is different and uh, Ariadne actually knows how it works because he told her, mm. he could be trapped in her dream, possibly, because she knows how it works. And then others have said that it it only doesn't topple because he concentrates on it and makes it not topple in his dream. So because he walks away, he's not concentrating on it. So that's why maybe it wobbles. <laughs> so he could still be in a dream, but if it, it would, because he's not concentrating on it, so it could fall and he'd still be in a dream. But honestly, reality is subjective, right? Mm. And I think that it, in in all honesty, in all honesty, it doesn't even matter because his whole purpose was to be able to see their faces again. And so if he's trapped in a dream where he sees their faces and is with them, he'd rather be there than in reality. So in that respect, it really doesn't matter. But I think that's a brilliant point you brought up about Nolan incepting us and leaving the spinning top in our vault for sure. I mean, that's, that's a great metaphor for that. It really is like, and I would be fine with all those other theories panning out, but they, they don't follow the rules of the film. And I think if you want to make those things work, you have to go by what the film is discussing, not kind of start inserting your own, uh, ideas yeah. into it yeah and so they're fun i mean they're all fun to think about and i feel like people come up with well, those more to get clicky bait you know mm-hmm. stuff <laughs> no i totally get that but i the, the one that i can kind of see and understand that doesn't really break the rules necessarily would be because Cobb's totem is different than other totems other totems are in reality it behaves the way you have like you know, Arthur has the loaded die, right? Ariadne has the chess piece that falls a certain way. But in the dream, it acts differently. It acts like a normal chess piece or it acts like a normal die, not the loaded die. But his is different. His acts different. Right. It defies gravity. It defies, yeah, it's like the opposite. Yeah. So because of that, I could kind of see how someone knowing what happens to it you know i see what you mean do you see what i'm saying yeah they don't have to touch it in order to know that it keeps spinning right exactly i mean it could be the the situation where like so arthur if his loaded die in reality he always rolls a six right if he told someone that he always rolls a six that could be a similar situation uh that's interesting but when does when does she find out that the 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 top keeps spinning though like i feel like that's much later in the film yeah he tells her later but not before they're in like the dreamscapes yeah he tells her before they go in before they go on the plane he tells her it doesn't stop spinning or he tells her that i have he tells her he no he tells her this was malls she'd spin it in a dream and it would just never topple it would just keep spinning forever okay he literally says those words okay to her before they do Inception on Fisher. Okay. Now, I don't think that they, at least they establish that they're not in her dreams, in her dream, Mm. in any of the levels, right? So they go down, the first person they go into is is, um, Fisher. And then the next person they go into is, who? Is it Saito? No, it's, who do they go into beneath that? That's... Oh, it's uh, uh, it's uh, the Browning. It's uh, Browning. They go into Browning. Yeah, 
and then they go into to Cobb. No, then they who's below Browning? Because Brown below Browning is the uh, the Th- that's the bunker that they attack. It's the bunker. Yeah, that's Fisher again. Um, yeah, then they go into yeah Fisher Fisher again, and then they go into Cobb to get to Maul, and then they go and then Cobb goes even deeper into himself to get to Saito. So they never really go. They say they don't go into Ariadne. So I don't, I'm not saying this is the thing. I'm just trying to understand it and like reason with it. So it's just, that's, that's an interesting thing because his totem is different. Yeah. Okay. In a way. Yeah. I'll, I'll pull up that clip and I'll insert the verbiage into the show notes just so everybody can be on the same page. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm I'm pretty satisfied that, you know, he's awake and that we earned our our ending, that it wasn't yeah, just, you know, kind of slapdash and uh, kind of a major blink kind of kind of thing. Um, yeah. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that's I think I mean, I, I'm sure we could riff we could talk about this for another hour. <laughs> yeah. um, you know what? I would rather hear from other people on what they think in this regard. I mean, this is what makes a great movie yeah. is having a discussion like this. And, uh, knowing that it could go on for another hour and, and still just scratch the surface. That's, that makes that's a great movie. Heck yeah. You know, at least it's a timeless movie for sure. I mean, I feel like that final shot is going to be famous forever. And those, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and those visual effects of the city kind of bending down, you know, on top of mm-hmm. itself are absolutely incredible. And it kind of goes back to something we've talked about, you know, a few times, which is, visual effects work better whenever you're not trying to imitate life, like imitating objects. Um, and he's outside. And so you had these hard shadows coming from the sun and that interactivity between the light and the object itself is so much easier to render on, you know, harder objects as opposed to skin and making like try and go watch, you know, matrix reloaded and see, you know, how the, how badly some of that stuff looks. And there's a lot of reason to it, but replicating human beings are so much more difficult. There's so many more things happening on our skin surfaces than, than are happening on, you know, a table. Like it's so easy to make a fake table um, and easy to make a fake landscape uh, of buildings a little bit harder. It's gotten easier, but a little bit harder to make actual landscapes with trees and forests. Um, We've definitely gotten much, much, much better at that. Uh, But even to a, a degree, it's still so much easier to make a building. And, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think you're right. This is going to be a timeless film. Like we'll be able to enjoy this still, you know, in, you know, 15, 20 years and it's still going to feel pretty fresh. Oh yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Nice. Great chat, man. Thanks, man. Uh, what are you going to recommend this week? So I'm going to recommend something a little bit different. Well, okay. Before we go on to that, I just also have to say, you can't talk about a Nolan film without talking about the music and Hans Zimmer destroys this he hands down best composer thank you i can't think of the word best composer of our day um i mean you know you have john williams who's done some of the most iconic stuff ever but i feel like iconic is different than great obviously everything that he's done from you know raiders of the lost ark to like just everything is is amazing but hans zimmer finds a way to put visuals to emotion through music. I mean, you, you hear, and it's so simple. The main theme of this film is so simple. It's four notes 
And then he just destroys you with four notes over and over and over again. It makes you understand that it does not have to be complex to be meaningful and emotional. If I could meet the man, I would just want to shake his hand and say thank you for what you've done for, you know, for cinema in general. I feel like he's changed the way uh, music or the way that movies are scored now. You know, I mean, everything, you know, he loves symphonies and using symphonies and big stuff like that, but he is not afraid to get small and tiny and intimate when it's called for. Um, uh, and he, he and Nolan are just the greatest team ever in, in, in film and music. And it's just, I cannot speak to the brilliance that is Hans Zimmer. It's just fantastic. Agreed on all fronts. And I would also add, you know, the way, because they also use uh, what I believe is an Edith Piaf song um, mm-hmm. as, you know, the, the wake up music. And he adds on to on top of that to give it, you know, more fullness. And it's like he's just lifting someone else's composition up through his own work, which is damn cool. And kind of a fun little tie over. Speaking of Edith, Edith Piaf is that uh, Marion Cotillard uh, also played her and another film called Levy and Rose, uh, which is a great movie. Oh, yeah. Everyone should definitely check that out. Uh, but it's that's a little fun little like, oh, hey, she's she's, you know, hearing herself sing. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, so anyway, uh, on that note, I'm going to recommend an album uh, and it's probably not an album you would expect me to recommend, but it's a great album. So the Dixie Chicks have a new album out. And they go, they're not going by the Dixie Chicks anymore. They're, they call themselves the Chicks. And, uh, this album is called Gaslighter. And it is, uh, it's produced by what's, what's his name? Jack, uh, Antonoff. Antonoff. Yeah. Sorry about that. It's produced by Jack Antonoff, uh, who is the guitarist for fun and, uh, started Bleachers band bleachers and is the the lead singer and guitarist and bleachers just a you know a brilliant musician in general but um he took a band of already incredible musicians let's just state that the dixie chicks are fantastic musicians they play everything and they're amazing singers and and he made them something more and just it's brilliant uh the songwriting writing is fantastic the lead singer, her husband cheated on her and like she destroys him on this record, destroys him. So any, any ladies or guys out there who have uh, had that happen to them, go listen to this record. It'll make you feel real good, real good on that front. But the production on it is incredible. So on that front, have you, have you listened to the new Taylor Swift? I have not, but from what I understand, the the lead singer from uh, the national, like, worked on that album with her. Uh, mm. uh, I believe it. It's, it sounds like that folklore. It's yeah. a, it's a much, yeah, it's a much more, um, mature record. My favorite track on there. She does a track with Bonnie Bear. No uh, way. And, yeah. 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 It's real good. It's real good. So yeah, I'm not a Swifter. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that she's really good at what she does and she's really good at writing lyrics and stuff. She's, she writes all her own lyrics and a lot of her own music. So super, super talented, super talented. I'm not taking anything away from her. Just not my bag, but she's, it's a, it's a great record. It's much more mature. And I can, I didn't know that he produced that, but that makes complete sense now that you say that because (laughs) it's pretty, pretty like mellow Mm. in a lot of ways. 
So there's poppy stuff on there. Obviously, it's Taylor Swift, but no, I'll be checking that out then because that's that's both of those albums. I'll I'll be checking out. Nice. I did not come up with a really really good uh, reco in terms of appropriate. It's still a great reco, and you're a heathen if you don't uh, go do it. Um, But go check out uh, Perfect Sense. I don't even know if it's streaming anywhere right now. It was streaming on Hulu for quite a while, Um, but it's a movie about the end of. End of the world, more or less. And it stars uh, Eva Green and Ewan uh, McGregor. McGregor. Good Lord, what is wrong with me? (laughs) Yeah. I'm not sure who's recommending this anymore. Um, (laughs) But yeah, go watch it. It's such a good movie. It's streaming right now, I guess, on Showtime, uh, Amazon. Um, But it's such a good movie. And it's one of those that it's quiet surprise. I feel like most Ewan McGregor movies are. Um, But if you haven't seen it, especially, you know, as you're quarantined and, you know, uh, maybe feeling like you're watching the world kind of end around you, uh, this might feel like an appropriate movie to kind of uh, sink into for an hour and a half. And I, I love it. It's one of these that I like to, on the sly, introduce people to like, hey, have you seen this movie? Um, Go check it out. Cool. And so, yeah, you'll see a trailer for that in the show notes as well as uh, links to the uh, the chicks. Um, And so... This week, uh, we have a short spotlight that is back. Uh, you can find Power of Ten by Charles and Ray Eames on, at the show notes. Um, and stay tuned for next week when we cover Moonlight, uh, Barry Jenkins' uh, phenomenal, phenomenal uh, movie. I mean, it's okay. Go watch it, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I gave it away. Yeah. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Uh, leave us a note if there's something that you want us to talk about or the kind of things that you find interesting that we discuss or maybe don't discuss uh whatever like do that and even better if you do it in a review we'll definitely do it uh like lay charlie Mm -hmm. and i gosh i had a shout out though oh i wanted to give a shout out to uh hannah who is getting over the virus right now oh yeah good for her yeah man gosh that sounded brutal um but i'm glad you're on the mend and uh really really happy that uh you're doing well and it sounds like all your family is also recovering uh more or less better but uh Everybody mask up, do the things so that yeah. we can, uh, you know, get back to reality sooner than better, uh, later. Hannah, I want, Hannah, I want to know what you think of the ending of Inception. Yes. Really. Por favor. So we'll leave you with a quote of the day from Buddha. I'm glad you put this in there because it's, uh, th- like been reading up on Buddhism and, and stuff and, huh. uh, the whole idea of making a hell of heaven and a heaven of hell in your mind. And so, uh, but anyway, we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. And uh, I mean, it's it's so true. I think that a lot of times we forget how powerful our mind is and in, uh, in shaping our reality. It goes back to what I just said about you know you can make a hell of heaven and a heaven of hell, and that people do it every day. I do it every day. Um, things that shouldn't have a lot of weight do. Things that should bother me don't. You know, uh, it, it really depends on a lot of factors and stuff. But, you know, you it, it's important to stop and remember that you have control over more than you think that you do. Even when it's difficult, that's when we should practice, you know, like meditate. I, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to meditate every day now. And it's really helped me collect myself, not just for the day, but in that moment, you know, like be there, be present. And then, you know, give yourself a task possibly throughout the day. Like think, think about it when you stand up or when you sit down, like things like that. Like it's in, it's really important to be 
be present and uh and yeah remember that your mind kind of like builds you you're, you build yourself through your mind you know yeah, it's a great quote yeah and Exactly. I mean, I think that's all right on. And I love just conceptually as maybe he, Christopher Nolan was thinking about this movie, you know, just the, the way that, uh, even if you don't think of it in terms of dreams, but the way that like you're saying, like Buddha saying, like we create our own reality with the inner lives that we experience and that we build for ourselves. And so to some degree, and maybe not to, you know, the, the full extent of, you know, reality, but to some degree, you know, we react to uh, the world and we get to choose how we react to the world. Although, yeah. you know, not everything, uh, obviously, uh, but right. you know, it's just surprising how many times that we can create our own depression or we can create our own happiness. Um, and you, you deal and I say that as someone who, uh, battles depression, you know, daily. And so it's not necessarily my fault. Uh, but there's sometimes I can battle and, you know, uh, maybe know where my stresses are and where I can put my energy and my time and my focus into to, to make my day that much better uh, instead of that much darker. And so, yeah, we are what we think and all that we are arises with our thoughts. That's, that's the impetus for where we want to be. And I love just thinking that in terms of this movie, Maul was a representation of his subconscious and that was the reality that he was creating. And to him, he couldn't control it. But that was the reality that he chose. He could have controlled it. And that's how he ended up, you know, saving himself was by finally deciding to do something about it. That was a new reality he chose for himself. And I, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, I was going to say, yeah. And that, that's brilliant that you bring that up because I had, I had a, a, a physical response whenever he told her at the end that you're just a shade of what she really was even like my mind you are a pro projection from my mind and my, i cannot recreate her perfect enough I, and i mean i got goosebumps when he said that i i did not remember that that and so he like basically like let her go finally and man that had that had to be hard especially because he's the reason why she died in the first place uh but anyway yeah, yeah I, no absolutely it's yeah. the guilt that he talks yeah. about. And normally I don't really think of Christopher Nolan in terms of these, you know, dramatic emotional moments, but he did earn and build those moments of like, you know, I think about you all the time. I think about all this guilt that I have, the guilt that I never, you know, I'm never going to be able to get rid of. Um, and it finally is at the end where uh, maybe he was keeping her around on purpose because this was oh, the only yeah. way that I can still experience you. But it was ultimately destroying him um, and it was going to mm -hmm. cost him everything, everything else that he loved in life. And so it was, it was yeah. an important moment for him to, to let go. Yeah. And you know, there, there gets to be a point where when you're sad about something for so long that the sadness becomes a friend in a, in a way. And so you kind of hold on to it one because you don't know any different and two because you don't think you deserve to not have it right and in his case i feel like he was that was definitely a, an issue for him you know he didn't he like he couldn't shoot her before she shot fisher mm. one because you know he loves maul and he wants to keep, keep seeing maul but also i feel like he just has like you said he, he told her he has so much guilt that the idea of 
literally killing her from his mind is basically telling himself that he deserves to be over it and he doesn't feel like he deserves that nor does he really want that you know he wants to be able to see her every now and then in his dreams like he doesn't want that to be gone um i think he deserve he feels like he deserves the sadness and that's that's rough it's amazing uh, uh, when you just think about human psychology that uh, there are people who forgive themselves too easily and there are people who cannot bring themselves to forgive themselves um and and both probably deserve a little bit more of the of the opposite of what they give themselves you know um yeah you can bury yeah. yourself un, unrighteously you know uh, just because you feel guilty doesn't mean you have to stay there forever yeah cool no, that's a whole episode. <laughs> yeah. well guys thank you for joining us I, I think we ran over but who cares this is a great film we loved it i think we both give it a 10 out of 10 yep. i'm speaking for wes yeah. uh so like he said please make sure to share this episode and share the pestle with anybody that you know review us on itunes all that good stuff uh like us wherever you can thanks again for listening until next week i'm todd i'm wes go watch some movies